This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Hi, it's Glenn Beck, and I want to thank you for supporting The Blaze. Because of your phone calls and emails, The Blaze has been added by many TV providers. But we can't stop now. The big media companies like DirecTV, Comcast, and Time Warner aren't listening. They think CNN, MSNBC, and Al Jazeera America are all you need. But we humbly disagree, and we think you do too. Visit GetTheBlaze.com and let your TV provider know that you want The Blaze in your home. GetTheBlaze.com. Thanks. Will Kane, S.E. Cup, R. Kane and Cup, only on the Blaze Radio Network. You want to finish that bite? <clears throat> Excuse me. Why don't me. you finish that bite and bring us in? <laughs> I'm S.E. Cup. I'm Will Kane. I was just finishing my breakfast. It's I'll early. It is. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. I was I, eating my energy bagel. Have some orange juice. Welcome to Kane and Cup. Good Saturday morning to you. Grab yourself a bagel. Grab yourself a juice. Join SE Cup. Mm-hmm. Have a little breakfast. Hang out with us for the next three hours. We got a big show today. Big show. Big ruling out of the Supreme Court this week mm-hmm. on affirmative action. So, of course, we want to talk about that. And we're going to do it um, in a couple different ways. In the first hour, right at the top here, Will, my lawyer friend, is going to lay out sort of the legal constitutional uh, background to why the Supreme Court, I think, made the right decision and why Sonia Sotomayor's uh, dissent is pretty problematic. In the second hour, I'm bringing in a guest who is the author, co-author of a book called Mismatch. Um, you might have heard about it because it came out to kind of a stir. It's called Mismatch, How Affirmative Action Hurts Students It's Intended to Help and Why Universities Won't Admit It. He's going to come on to talk about the the practical reasons why affirmative action uh, is not a good social practice. And then in the third hour, we're bringing in one of our friends. His name is Mark Lamont Hill. You might have seen him on CNN or Bill Maher or MSNBC or Fox. Um, he's going to debate us because I'm, I, I think I know Mark Lamont Hill. I think he probably disagrees with this decision. We're going to get his take on it. And, uh, in also, between all that, a whole mess, a whole of, other mess stuff. of stuff. We're going to debate strip clubs. We're going to debate what exactly I, is a call, bro. That's not a debate. We're not debating whether or not you clubs. can uh, stiff a strip club on its bill. Did you just say stiff a strip club? I did. You're already in trouble. No, 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 no. Watch your double entendre, Mister. <laughs> like We're I said, talk about Clive and Bundy, right? Whether or not you've uh, abandoned your support, and whether or not someone who supported Clive and Bundy a week ago. Should still support him today. We got a big show, like I said, but let's yeah. do this, Essie. Let's start off, as we said, with affirmative action. And what I want to tell you is this the debate on affirmative action, you know, is, has come to resemble a crazy man walking down a New York City street. You've seen so? these guys walking down the street every day having an argument with themselves. <laughs> you know, I, uh, one, one side he makes a point and then he shifts to the other side almost physically and looks at himself and, and, and makes a rebuttal, uh, counters himself. Hmm. Um, that is kind of reminiscent. It kind of reflects the debate we have uh, devolved into on affirmative action. In fact, you told me just a moment ago, this talking to yourself, this arguing with yourself is actually part of your process. Uh, you know, the things I tell you in confidence are not always radio appropriate. What I told you before the show, and I'll, I will never confide in you again, is that in preparation for some debates, sometimes I talk to myself during the day. 
and I flush out those debates with myself, often in the shower, to simulate the debate I know I'm going to have later. That is my process, and it does not need to be mocked. You are (laughs) not unlike a crazy man walking down the street in New York City, and what I would suggest to you is... Our affirmative action debate in this country is not so different either. We've come to the point where we are both repeating ourselves and rebutting ourselves consistently. So when the chief justice of the Supreme Court says, I believe the best way to end racial discrimination is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. No one points out that. uh, But uh, yeah, right. Right. You just said that. Right. I just said that. It's a Laurel and Hardy debate. Yeah, me too. That's what I think, too. Even those that would rebut that premise seem to repeat it back to themselves to the point where a Supreme Court case this week called Shoot versus the Coalition Defend Affirmative Action went before those nine justices in black robes with this, with this question. Whether or not a state can essentially repeat the 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution, the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment states that no state shall deprive its citizens of equal protection of the law. Almost like an echo to that, the state of Michigan amended their constitution to read the following. The state shall not discriminate against or grant preferential treatment to any individual on the basis of race, sex, color, ethnicity, or national origin in the operation or in the hiring of public employment, public education, or public contracting. It's again like the Laurel and Hardy debate. Yeah, right, says the constitution. I just said that. (laughs) I just said that. I just said that, Michigan. Right, so did I, (laughs) says Michigan. And so now we've come to a point where we have to ask ourselves, can you repeating that, can that be unconstitutional? We're arguing with the echo in the cave. You walk Mm -hmm. into the cave, you shout the 14th Amendment, and you argue with the echo that comes back to Uh you. Right. That was the question, whether or not a state can ban discrimination. Justice Scalia said, it has come to this. Is it constitutional for us to essentially, or is it unconstitutional for us, to repeat the text of what plainly the 14th Amendment says? And according to at least two justices, and one in particular, Justice Sonia Sotomayor, in fact it is. I want to point out the Supreme Court, thankfully, in a step, a positive step, away from using race, away from discrimination, said, yes, in fact, a state can echo the Constitution. Yes, a state can, in fact, outlaw the use of discrimination and race preferences. That will be constitutional. But Justice Sonia Sotomayor, as I said, said, this is a dark, dark day. Yeah. Um, It's also it was also a step in the right direction, and a win for voters, right? I mean, voters wanted to implement essentially what the Constitution had said. And if what what the Supreme Court was also in part deciding was that voters should have a say in this as well. Absolutely. It said that voters can, in fact, echo the Constitution. They have yes. the power, in fact, to write the Constitution, to transcribe it into their own into their own state constitutions. Mm. Sotomayor, uh, by the way, said this, okay? In rebuttal to Chief Justice Roberts' longstanding statement that I— said at the beginning of this statement. Yeah, that, read it again, read it again. You can, uh, the best way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. Yeah, he said that in 2007. He did. Yeah. Justice Sotomayor said this, the best way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to speak openly and candidly on the subject of race. Oh, okay. 
and to apply the Constitution with eyes open oh. to the unfortunate effects of centuries of racial discrimination. Uh-huh. That's different. I don't want to get this <laughs> lost in some abstraction. Well, that's what that, that is. That is abstract BS that doesn't actually point us in a meaningful direction. Absolutely. You're not a professor, Justice Sotomayor. You're a judge. You're not a pundit. You you're must have pundit. some right. legal premise on what you're saying. Right. And although you might be a wise Latina and are coming to these issues with a background, which is important, your rule is the Constitution. I'm telling you, as he, she culminated this dissent. And those that would support affirmative action must arrive at this conclusion. That Sotomayor repeated over and over in her dissent, race matters. Race matters. She repeated that mantra over and over. Race matters. Well, and, and this is we why... We must take it into account in our decision making. Yeah, and, and this is why this reminds me... <clears throat> and again, we're going to get into the practical matters of affirmative action in the next hour. But this is why this reminds me of so many other issues <clears throat> that the left and progressives push. They try to foist upon the public um, their their own sort of psyche on these issues. And they go they always go too far. They always overreach on this. You and I have talked about this before. We are pro-gay rights. However, and and National Review editorial mentions this this week. The progress on affirmative action has followed the left's familiar ratchet effect model, inching its way from something that is not forbidden to something that is compulsory. So for gay marriage, well, the first goal we want, it, it can't be forbidden. You can't, you can't make it illegal. Just make it legal. From there, it goes to compulsory. You must embrace this. If you don't, and I mean love it, if you don't love it and wrap your arms around this issue, you are a bigot. And it's the same thing on affirmative action. Let's make this um, illegal to discriminate on the basis of race, and then it goes to compulsory. You must wrap your arms around race so tightly in such a bear hug that if you don't, you're a racist. Race matters, in the words of Justice Sonia Sotomayor. We have a long and tortured history of race in this country, one where we essentially had to reapply that blindfold to Lady Justice to suggest, no, no, you will not judge any human being standing before you on the superficial merits of their skin. You will look deeper. And we've gone through this process to adopting standards where we ask, where we, no, where we require that we give our citizens equal protection of the law. And then in the oddest 360-degree turn, mm-hmm. back to where we started, we are told again that race matters. It's not unlike TARP. Justice Sonia Sotomayor and others are suggesting we had to kill the 14th Amendment in order to save it. We had to kill equal protection in order to save it. That seems to be their argument. They are asking Lady Justice, to take that blindfold back off and to see and to ask of anyone standing before her, wait a minute, what color are you? Well, right, right. It, it seems, I don't know if it's an overcompensation is, is right. I don't know if that's right. I don't know if that's what's motivating it, but it seems like you have to flip this on its head to approach any kind of acceptable or sufficient um, process for for the left on this mm-hmm. issue. And and they're really immune to reason. And we're going to get into the reasoning in the second hour, but they're immune to reason and efficacy. You have to ask, great, okay, if your intention is noble, 
on affirmative action, and I believe that decades ago the intent was good, you still have to ask, is this working? Is this having the desired effect? And if it's not, and and we all know it's not, um, well, then you have to question your premises. And they're so unwilling to question premises because they think if they question a premise for a second, they will lose the argument. Let's do that. In the next hour, we'll come back. We will leave behind the principles. We'll leave behind the Constitution. We'll leave behind the legality and ask that simple question. Does affirmative action actually even benefit those who are supposed to be the beneficiaries of affirmative action? But before we get there, we have a very important stop the presses reset question. We've done two Game of Bros. And I don't think we've established this. What's a bro? It's an important question, Will. We really, we skipped a couple steps in this. That's right. We need to revisit. That next, when we come back on Kane and Cup. You're listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. Will Kane and S.E. Cup return. Welcome back to Kane and Cup. I'm Will Kane. I'm S.E. Cup. This we must do. We must revisit something and start anew a game, a game of bros. Time again for game of bros, but this time stop the presses. We got to reset. No, no, is this guy a bro or is, is this guy not a bro? No, give me your votes on whether or not Hoodies for Hobos or Dustin Pedroia is real or not. We have a very simple question. We got ahead of ourselves. We really did. We took for granted that people knew what we were talking about. We realized this last night. We were walking down the street debating each other. Is that a bro? That's not a bro. That's a bro, right? No. That just, that's just a guy on his way to a softball game. <laughs> <laughs> that was you and me yesterday, so we decided, what exactly is a bro? Of course, to answer that question, we have impaneled what we think is a group of bros. Yeah, it's a panel of bros, but we I don't know actually. I don't know. Let's see. I don't know. Let's introduce the guys again. We've got uh on mic number 1. On mic number 2, John. And on mic number 3, Steve. Hello. Good. Brian, Steve. go again. I don't think we could hear you. Yeah, I didn't hear bro number 1. Still can't. I'll tell you what. Brian, move over and share the mic. mic. All three of you get on the same mic. I'll be on mic two. There you go. A little huddle of guys together. That's that's very cute. Um, See, I think we we have to start with this. Each one of you guys, question number one. In a very short summation, define for me what is a bro. We'll start with you, John. I think a bro is a guy who's pretty confident in uh, the way he sees the world and lives the uh, life he wants to. I like my bros with a, at least a modicum of athleticism, I think, um, and also the ability to party uh, a little bit. I think I think there's a combination. And I think this is, again, subjective. I think a lot of people are getting different opinions on bros. Uh, Brian, what's a bro? I think a bro is sort of – it's an umbrella, uh, an umbrella description of a wide variety of different types of males, uh, but I would say, based off of what John just said, definitely confident males. So you have maybe – Nerdy bros, average bros, mm. athletic bros. Mm. Yeah, so I don't on. like that answer. 
Yeah, that's right, also it's, that's it's, a catch-all. It's, it's touchy-feely, Brian. You left yourself a lot of wiggle room. Steve, what's a bro? That that was that was beautiful, Brian. <laughs> I'm gonna uh, search instead of the C word, confident. I was thinking more of the D word. Not sure if I can say it. Douchey. Yes. Uh huh. And um, maybe obnoxious. <laughs> I don't disagree. I don't. Disagree. Maybe obnoxious, but not a bad person. They mean well. They just maybe don't come across in the best manner. I gotta say, Steve's okay. definition is the closest to mine. Yeah, and Steve is not a bro. This was up for some debate quite some time ago. Steve is not. I a haven't bro. slept for a week thinking about this, so I'm glad we're doing this conversation today. <laughs> you are. Way too empathetic, sympathetic. You turned to Brian and told him his answer was um, beautiful after I chastised it. So let me tell you what a bro is. It requires a couple things. It requires no sympathy and no empathy. You have none of that, okay? You have no self-awareness as a bro either. You must walk around the world completely unaware of what image you are actually projecting. I think that's right. Over-masculine. Yeah, hyper-masculine, although we have different... We have different degrees of what that looks like, right? Because we were talking earlier, like, is that athletic shorts? Or can you be a bro in pants with animals embroidered on them? Yeah. we. And we yes, you can. No, you cannot. Yes, 100%. you can. What's that, John? 100% you can. <laughs> if you go to South Carolina or Washington, D.C. or Nantucket, those places are replete with those kinds of bros. No, and where I come from, if you got those pink pants on with little pr- cute animal prints uh-huh. on it, you are... Not a bro. Not a bro. Just say not a bro okay, to not save a yourself. Bro. Okay. <laughs> now, let, let, so I'm going to direct question number two to you, John, because I sense a little bit of defensiveness from you on my uh, attack. I'm starting to get upset here. <laughs> <laughs> so I have taken something from you. I have taken bro away from you because we all know, and so those listening, John would wear those pants we described. John does wear those pants. Regularly. So, which is interesting because you now also seem to be defensive that you are also bro. So the question is, is being a bro... Question number two, a compliment. I, to me, it is sure. I think it, I'm I'm very confident in my broness, <laughs> oh my I, and I think just to turn. Yeah, but will that goes to your thing? Un, not very self aware. <laughs> not self aware. It, it goes back to my confidence thing as well. I'm right. very confident in my broness. Right. <laughs> You've got a Miata right. and a Rolex, <laughs> right? And a cat. <laughs> and a cat. <laughs> Steve is being a bro a compliment. I feel like being a bro is a compliment only if that compliment comes from another bro. Yes, yeah, like, it's only a, compr- a compliment if you're a bro. You love to be called a bro. It's, it's like a if fraternity. You're a bro. It's like an unspoken fraternity. I think you're right. But I think if you're a bro, you have that confidence that anyone calling you a bro, you're totally okay with it, and it, it's a compliment. I think that's the. Uh-huh. Brian, is, is being a bro a compliment? Keep in mind, this is a very educational experience for oh, me. Here we Clearly, go. I need to uh, all I need the to, caveats from bro number one. I need to learn more about bro, so I'm very um, grateful for doing. this discussion. Uh, I don't know, Will. I'm pretty. I, I think I'm following your lead here. Um, <laughs> being a bro probably isn't that good of a thing. I like the fraternity invocation because I think the good characterization of the bro is not the frat guy. It's the frat guy among the frat guys that doesn't know when to stop um, hazing the freshman. Yeah. That doesn't know when to stop the drinking. He's when the guy that says- When to turn the affect off. He's the guy like, drink, come on. Yeah. Why aren't you drinking? Go and streaking. Go streaking. Take your clothes off. We're drinking. Right. And everyone's like, oh, it's time to go to bed, dude. We did that. We did that for four hours. We're going to bed. No, we're not stopping. All right, quickly around the horn, all three of you. What's the opposite of a bro? Brian, what's the opposite of a bro? Don't give me some cerebral caveat answer. Give me a one-word opposite of the bro. Bro. A gentleman. A gentleman. Oh. John, what's the opposite of a bro? Nerd. 
Steve, what's the opposite <laughs> of a bro? Me. Aww. Yeah. 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 Um, I, I like that. <laughs> I would go with hipster, but I think John nailed it. It's a... Uh, it's a... Uh, it's a nerd. It's a nerd. Well, I think we got somewhere. Uh, I don't know where, don't but know. we got somewhere. We got a little closer to defining what a bro is. Clive and Bundy, when we come back on Kane and Cup. This is Kane and Cup, part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. To Kane and Cup, I'm SC Cup, and I'm Will Kane. Do you feel like we got somewhere there with that game of Bros? Game of Bros? Little, little bit. I don't think we made great strides. We might need, we might need to bring like a definitive bro in to tell us what a bro is to set the to set the parameters. Yeah, define the mold. Yeah, what is a bro? So that we can continue with our game of bros and everyone is speaking the same language on the same page. Give me the bro prototype. The bro code. The bro prototype. The prototype. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's switch gears because another big story this week was the unraveling, the very fast unraveling of the Cliven Bundy rallying support group. There was a diaspora. Do you know what that means? Mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know what that means. It's a scattering of people who are like-minded or wow. more, more appropriately used of the same ethnic background. Will Kane. Boom. Boom. That's amazing. Uh, yeah, there was literally like an exodus, a diaspora <laughs> of Bundy supporters absolutely fleeing from the guy when it was revealed he had made some racist comments uh, about African-Americans, also about Hispanics. And suddenly, um, what was, you know, the absolute cause celeb of the year for some Tea Party conservatives became, well, we don't, we don't, we don't stand with him anymore. He's not, he doesn't speak for us. Let's play some of what he said that got people so uh, riled up. Go ahead and play. I want to tell you one more thing I know about the Negro. When I, when I go, went, uh, go through Las Vegas, North Las Vegas, <clears throat> and I would see was these little government houses. Um, of course, we know what Clive and Bunny, many have heard the audio at this point, um, had to say. I'm sure you've come across mm-hmm. it. Um Basically, he had some comments on the Negro, in his own words. He said, um, and I think I have to paraphrase from this point forward, something like um, that African Americans would be better off had they remained under slavery, or he wondered aloud whether or not they would be... Oh, there we go. I can hear it now. Go ahead and play that, so that Will does not have to paraphrase. When I go go through Las Vegas, North Las Vegas, and I would see these little government houses, and in front of that government house, the, the door was usually open, and the, the, the older people and the kids 
and there's always at least a half a dozen people sitting on the porch. They didn't have nothing to do. They didn't have nothing for their kids to do. They didn't have nothing for their young girls to do. And because they were basically on government subsidy, and so now what do they do? They abort their, their young children. They put their young men in jail because they never, they never learned how to pick cotton. And I've often wondered, oh, are they better off as slaves picking cotton, having family life and doing things, or are they better off under government subsidy? Yeah, they didn't get no more freedom. They got less freedom. They had less uh, family uh, alive and their happiness. You can see in their faces they weren't happy sitting on that concrete sidewalk. Down there they were probably growing their turnips. All right. Uh, that, uh, they, the they in that diatribe was African Americans. Um, here's what I want to know. We can call in 888-900-3393. I think we all agree what he said was repulsive, indefensible. However, my question to you is this. If you stood with Cliven Bundy last week, Because you thought his cause was just. Because you thought civil disobedience was the only way to achieve justice for Cliven Bundy and others who fear the encroachment of an overweening and burdensome federal government. Why does this change your mind? Maybe, yes, I can grant you, you think less of him as a person. Maybe you don't like him anymore. Maybe you wouldn't want him teaching your kids at school. But what does this really have to do with his cause? And I'll say for the record, for those of you who don't remember, Will and I made our uh, <clears throat> our feelings on the Cliven Bundy case pretty clear. Um, while we both agree, of course, that the federal government is too big and encroaching and, and probably... Uh, overcompensated in this case, overstepped in this case, neither of us really saw Cliven Bundy as worthy of the the kind of revolution that others were suggesting he was starting. I did not stand with Cliven Bundy. As much as I might have been sympathetic to his case, this was not a revolution for me. But if you did stand with Cliven Bundy, I don't see why this would change your mind. Are you telling me That in the history of time, the people who have been on, quote unquote, the right side of history or who have advanced meaningful, important causes have been perfect, haven't expressed beliefs somewhere along the line that you found indefendable, indefensible, repulsive. Is every single person who is a, a good chapter of our history book? Pure and perfect? Yeah. 888-900-3393. We want you in on this conversation. I guess the conversation somewhat for me moves to a different point of focus. It's not about purity. You know, to some extent, and you and I discussed this, Essie, uh, I see this job that that I have the, uh, the, the real privilege of doing, which is to sit in front of a microphone, is to often stand up and see movement. Right. Movement of opinion, movement of crowds and go, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are we all sure? Are we all 
moving in the correct direction. And when Clive and Bundy's support started to coalesce and I didn't see it, I felt what I need to ask here is, is this directly on point? Right. right. Is this the appropriate case to illustrate the conclusion from which most of us agree? The federal government is too overreaching. The mm-hmm. federal government is oppressive. It uses overwhelming force and it enforces its laws capriciously. Mm-hmm. That we, we all, all agree, agree upon. Mm-hmm. Is Cliven Bundy and the merits of his particular case over grazing fees in federal lands in Nevada and his own particular private property in Nevada, is his case the appropriate proxy to win those arguments, to illustrate those problems? Now, for most of the time, you know, I just never felt like we were on point. Right. Right? Like when you uh, – I, I don't mean to – when you have an argument with a drunk guy at a bar and he's constantly staring at your at your ear, right? And you're like, hey, we're not quite meeting eye to eye here on this. I can't quite get your attention and get you focused on what I'm talking about. I feel like when we have arguments over uh, how much federal land uh, is owned in Nevada, 87%, or how much horrible force was used to uh, apply a million-dollar bill um, – we weren't arguing on the right point. And what I am here telling this to say is what Clive and Bundy had to say on race is abhorrent. Yeah. On that, there was 100% agreement. But now I see the mob moving again. Now I see mm-hmm. the group coalescing around opinion, which is to say this was all that ever mattered. And by the way, there's more than that. It reveals the inherent racist core of conservative ideology or the Republican Party. And what I'm here to tell you is it's, again, not exactly on point. Yeah, I think there was a risk in adopting a cause and adopting a figure that was always a little off base. It was never a good fit for the conclusion, the arguments that wanted to, wanted to be made. And this is, again, a little bit of a red herring, a horrible red herring, mm-hmm. a red herring that, yes, you should still stay away from. But if you did believe, if you were in disagreement with me and me, yeah. That this was the appropriate cause. Right. That this was the appropriate proxy to have arguments over the size, scope, breadth, and power of the federal government. Why does this change your opinion? Right. Oh, I don't understand. I mean, I, I, I understand for optics sake why people in our profession have to publicly distance themselves from those statements. I get that. You have to do that because his statements were disgusting. But and, and you don't want to be associated with everything that Clive and Bundy stands for. I never assumed you were. In standing up for Clive and Bundy, I didn't assume that you supported his every position on every issue. I didn't even ask what his positions on other issues were. I don't care. If my interest was in his cause, not wanting to pay grazing rights because he didn't respect the legitimacy of the federal government, if I believed him on that, that's enough. This other stuff is kind of irrelevant. And I ask you again, was every other hero from civil rights or or suffrage or the other great causes that have been advanced, was every other hero perfect or aligned with everything that you believe? I very much doubt it. I very much doubt it. And your argument is not that you saw Clive and Bundy as a hero, but there are those that did. And if that's the case, what does this have to do with the initial cause? 888-900-3393. We want to bring you into the conversation. We're on Twitter, at Will Kane, at S.E. Cup. Tell Let's, us what you think, because I know yeah. a lot of our listeners felt passionately about Clive and Bundy. And I respect that. I want right. to hear from them and whether they're still on his side or not. Tell me why. I'm going to make a confession to you before we go to break. As... uh Bossy 
Plantman36 on Twitter points out, hmm. if you know the definition of the word diaspora, you still can't say it. You're not huh? a bro. Well, that's what I was going to confess to you. That you're not I, a bro. I might know the definition of it, but I thought the pronunciation was diaspora. That's wrong. Yeah, well. That's wrong. Yeah, well. More of that when we come back on Kane and Cup. This is Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. Listening to Kane and Cobb on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back. We're just, I'm Will Kane. <laughs> you welcome back. Shut your mouth when you're talking to me. <laughs> We're discussing whether or not Cliven Bundy's abhorrent remarks on race changed your opinion on whether or not you should support him on his initial cause and whether or not it has anything to do with his initial cause and whether or not you should have changed that opinion based upon, again, what is an abhorrent argument but really has nothing to do with the initial case that everyone wanted to discuss. Whether or not the federal government has become too overbearing, too big, too oppressive. What does this have to do with it? Let me go to Pat in Michigan. Pat, what do you say? Hey, good morning. Good morning. Let me, let me give you a perspective here, and, and you guys know this better than anybody. You have to be very measured and articulate in a thought when you are presenting to any member of the media because they can take that, any, any misstep that you make, the wrong syllable, they're going to take it and twist it on you, right? So we heard Cliven's own words, and I don't agree with his, his articulation of his thought, but what he was trying to say in my mind is that the government is oppressive and holds black folk in economic slavery. Now, again, he didn't articulate that correctly, but this is a guy that's been fighting an oppressive government for 20 years. But, so Pat, let start- me stop you right there, because I don't think it's smart for us to translate for him or to try to figure out what he actually meant, because we don't know. I mean, I understand what you're trying to say, but we don't know what he actually meant. Let's take his words as they were. Do you still support Cliven Bundy in his original cause? Well, the second part of my point is the government is out of control. The federal government is being oppressive. They could have put a lien on this guy's property and waited him out, yet they spent millions more than they have due to them trying to collect from him and make an example of him. So, yes, I still support Cliven Bundy and what he's done. I may not agree with what he said or how right. he articulated but I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt and still hold true to my support of his fight against the federal government. Well, see, now I think that's a that's an honest, that's a fair, intellectually honest, intellectually consistent opinion. Let's go to let's go to Joel in Florida. Joel, what do you have to say? Well, I don't, obviously you haven't heard the unedited version of his comments that was released yesterday. It's all over Facebook. You can find it. I actually posted it to the blaze myself. Why do you say, obviously, I haven't heard it? Well, because if you'd heard the unedited version, you'd understand his point was not had nothing to do with racism. It had to do with people living on the government dole being in a worse situation than what 
than slavery. I think I understand and, what he believes, Joel, but I think his point was made in pretty racist terms. You disagree? <laughs> Sorry, do you disagree? I, I disagree because I know the definition of racist. Racist means that I believe that I'm above someone else's race. He's not saying that. He's not saying anything like that. So by the definition of racist, no, his comments were not racist. Okay, so this is the third option. Yes, I stand with Cliven Bundy, and uh, I also stand with the new things that he said. That's, I mean, that's a third option. It's not one I agree with, but at least... I mean, this Again, it's consistent, which is all I ask for. That is like the third rail of politics, even more so than Social Security. What God is? forbid we talk about the people that are living in this demoralizing state of servitude to the government. All right. Well, Joel, we got to go. I appreciate it. I think we do talk about it. We talk about it quite a bit, but I, I, I hope we try to talk about it in better ways than Cliven Bundy did. All right. We're going to come back in the next block. We're going to go back to affirmative action we might we might stay on clive and bundy there might be more to go here we'll uh we'll talk about it we'll see we'll see what we think stay tuned kane and cup you're listening to kane and cup part of the next generation of talk radio on the blaze radio network Radio Network. Welcome back. Second hour of Kane and Cup. I'm Essie Cup. And I'm Will Kane. We've been talking about Clive and Bundy and whether, if you supported him before, whether you feel compelled to distance yourself now, now that we know he's a racist. Does that matter to you? Does that bother you? Does that change your opinion of his cause? Now, I wasn't particularly uh, moved by him as a flag bearer for a cause that I very much believe in. So I, I'm not faced with this dilemma. It's not to brag. That's just to say I, I don't I don't have to make this decision. Do I stand with Cliven Bundy or do I not stand with Cliven Bundy? Um, I am a small government Republican, as small government as they come. But I didn't think he was a great, um, a great sort of emblem of that cause. And not so different than you. It's less to do with him, yeah. and more to do with the merits of his case in Nevada over grazing fees. Yeah. Um, I never felt like that case was the appropriate one to apply these principles to right. reach the conclusion of which we all agree. Yeah, but now other conservatives are having to flee. And what really bothers me in all of this is that liberals are so giddy about it. Mm. They are so, they are like revelatory. They are reveling in the collapse of the Bundy support. And the reason why is they get to point out, well, conservatives get behind these kooks and losers who reveal the true nature of conservatism, right. and then conservatives act surprised and run away from them. That's what liberals say. And you know why that bothers me? Because it's not like liberals don't have these. They do. They're just not embarrassed by them. They don't run away. How is Al Sharpton any different than Clive and Bundy, except for the fact that liberals have not been embarrassed enough by Al Sharpton to run away from him? Despite time and time and time 
and time and time and again that Al Sharpton has been an absolute abomination and embarrassment, even if you agree with his cause, which is civil civil rights. He has been an embarrassment to that cause. Frederick Douglass and Susan B. Anthony and Rosa Parks are rolling over in their graves. When do they think about Al Sharpton being the new voice of their cause? But liberals don't get embarrassed the way conservatives do. Drives me crazy. Pressed on that, what would you point to as your number one exclusive piece of evidence in the Al Sharpton case? (laughs) Against Al Sharpton? That would be your, yes, smoking gun. Tell me how... Any of the things he has said about Jews, gays, Mm. or white people are different than the things that Clive and Bundy has said about African Americans. How are they any less offensive or revealing about Al Sharpton's true nature? I want to go to a call because I think our next caller actually wrote about Clive and Bundy in the Blaze magazine. John, tell me quickly, if you can, what your take is now. Hey, guys, how are you? I uh, I agree with USC 100%. I wrote two pieces on it, actually. One expressing my lack of support for Bundy and another exposing the BLM as a $4 billion a year uh, net profit enterprise. They're both uh, on theblaze.com in the contributions and the contributors section. But I have to agree with you 100%. I see Clive and Bundy a lot like I saw George Zimmerman, a horrible spokesperson for a really good cause. Right. Public publicity. And he's always been the same to me. People rallied behind these guys. And his racist comments, yeah, they're abhorrent and they were just idiotic. I yeah. mean, that, that slavery provided good family lives and people grew turnips <laughs> and were happy, which is stupid. Right. <laughs> right. But when we, we get past that, my problems with Bundy go to his ludicrous arguments and the fact that he put bad guys around him. I mean, the vitriolic hate mail I received mm. with the piece I wrote about not supporting him, and I know Glenn received it as well because he has to do some analyses for him when, when he wrote the piece on Facebook talking about the peaceful resolution. Yeah showed me that I was right. I mean, the people that Bundy's put around him, are they're just looking for violence. They don't they don't care about the public policy aspect of this or right or wrong. But I have to... Well, well probably well, some of them say. don't, you know? Well, well, a lot of them do, but what I'm saying is the most vocal ones, mm. I can tell you firsthand from what I've seen coming back to me, there's a lot of kooks around this guy. And you guys yeah. have pretty much said, you, know, you, you guys have mirrored my feelings, so there's not much for me to say. It's, it's all out there on the blaze to read. But it's... Uh, I was disappointed that we made him the poster boy. When when you start to do some research, there are some ranchers out there that paid their fees and suffered some horrible injustices. Well, John, yeah, I think that's the point. I think we probably could have found better examples. And look, these are causes we all believe in, and we're not going to stop believing in them. But we've got to be a little bit more careful, I think, about who we get behind. John, thanks for calling in, and everyone should read your piece on In the Blaze. Um, I do want to switch gears now, though, because we we had a big week uh, in terms of the Supreme Court ruling on affirmative action. Speaking of race. Speaking of race. Uh, yeah, and and we talked about it earlier. Will laid out, I thought, what was a pretty salient explanation of where the court was coming from on this case. And that's important. The legality, the constitutionality, that's all important. But I also think it's important that we talk about efficacy. When we're looking at these social programs, and essentially what they are is social experiments, We need to ask, are they working? That should matter. And I'm a constitutionalist, a strict constitutionalist, but I can be moved on efficacy. I really can. So I want to bring in uh, a law professor. His name is Richard Sander. He's co-author 
of a great book. It's called Mismatch, How Affirmative Action Hurts Students, It's Intended to Help, and Why Universities Won't Admit It. Now, Richard, when you wrote this book, um, you and Stuart were, your your co-author, were were longtime admirers of the goals of affirmative action. But in researching for the book, you found out what? Yes, you're right. I, I you know, I've, I've, I'm a long-time liberal and civil rights activist, but I've always uh, felt that we need to guide policy by facts, and uh, there are an awful lot of facts on affirmative action that are really disturbing. And kind of relevant to this week's ruling is uh, looking at California. California's had Prop 209, which banned racial preferences in the late 90s, and um, the effects have been have been remarkable uh, for blacks and Hispanic students in California. Um, Janet Napolitano, the, the president of UC, just wrote an op-ed kind of criticizing shooting, but then admitting that, that UC, after Prop 209, started massively spending to improve the K-12 pipeline. They've dramatically cut the, uh, the gap between minorities and, and whites and Asians in high school graduation rates. Hispanic enrollment in the UC system is more than doubled. Graduation rates, especially four-year graduation rates, have, have just skyrocketed. Well, yeah, and Richard, you're kind of you're kind of you're kind of going to the end of this of the conversation, which is what should we be doing differently? And that should certainly include more attention to K through 12. But tell me first, you know, I'm familiar with your premise, but tell our our listeners um, what affirmative action does in terms of mismatching students uh, to the wrong kinds of schools. So the, the, the basic idea is that if you put a student in a school where their credentials are much lower than those of their classmates, uh, then there, there are three things that have been documented to happen. One is that they learn less than they would if they were in a class with peers closer to their preparation level. The second is that they experience competition mismatch. They get discouraged because of the high level of competition, and they'll often drop out of school or switch from, say, science majors to uh, humanities majors. And the third is uh, social effects. Uh, you tend to have less of the social interaction that we always talk about as a desirable goal of affirmative action mm. when students are really strongly separated by academic credentials. Wow. So, and Professor, this is uh, – tell, tell me, is this not unlike um, a concept that Malcolm Gladwell kind of popularized in his latest book, David and Goliath, which he, he describes as the big fish, small pond, or small fish, big, fu- uh, big pond effect, whereas – uh, it's, he suggests it's more beneficial to, for example, be an excellent student at the University of Toronto than to be a below-average student at, at Harvard University. He suggests because of the psychological benefits, right? If you are seen as excelling, you actually excel and build confidence where the opposite happens if you are one of the below-average students at a, at a university like Harvard. You actually become a little bit depressed or have an insecure yeah. view of yourself. Yeah, uh, Gladwell is, uh, does a great job of summarizing the mismatch idea and um, provides some really compelling examples. I, I think it's important to emphasize, you know, when we're talking about social science, we're talking about uh, some degree of nuance. This is not a, a, a universal phenomenon. There are ways that universities can try and can do a better job of helping students they admit with preferences. But on the whole, what we see is, is colleges using large preferences, frequently very large preferences, and then just kind of letting the students uh, fend for themselves, and, mm-hmm. and the outcomes are often pretty bad. So, what was your what was your opinion of the decision this week? Do you think that that's going to have a significant impact on uh, affirmative action college education? 
Well, had Trudy come out the other way, it would have been it would have been pretty disastrous uh, for the cause of reforming affirmative action, because it would have essentially said that that uh, there are going to be very strict tests for when uh, voters or even legislatures can uh, can can limit the use of preferences. Mm. So, so this was a uh, uh, I, I would say the cr- critics of affirmative action had more writing on this this case than than the supporters of it did. Mm-hmm. But I think it will it will tend to give um, some political impetus to further reform efforts. And I think the afternoon that the case came out, um, some Wisconsin legislators uh, had a press conference announcing an intent to introduce uh, a Prop 209 type measure. Hmm. And you know, in the last in the last year, I think there has really been a significant change in in, in the debate. Um, I, I've had several conversations now with university presidents who say. It's true, you know, we, we have sort of looked the other way, but the evidence is starting to become hmm. pervasive enough that, that, that we think we do need to rethink this. But we have to question the premises that, that we've been operating under for decades now. And is why has, has that, why have we been so um, slow to, to embark on this on an evidence-based kind of pathway? Is it just that it's such an emotional issue and it, and it is so political that we, we end up tying ourselves to an outcome that just ceases to exist eventually. It's not just political, it's racial and, and on campuses, race is an unbelievably volatile subject. Mm. See, you, you get this cycle where um, a university emits students with large preferences. Those students are struggling in, in their view. They're trying to explain what's happening to them, and a lot of them say, "Well, there must be some kind of racism or discrimination on campus that explains why I and all my same race friends are, are struggling." Uh, so, so they they sort of they sort of feel very sensitive about the degree to which the university is supporting them. And as mm-hmm. I said, a lot of times the university is not doing much in the way of academic support. Mm-hmm. So, if a university says, "Well, you know, maybe what we need to do is is change our admissions policy," that that lights the fuse and sets off an explosion. And you see it over and over again. So, so universities tend to just completely back off the subject. Right. And it's what you need is to find some way of uh, of kind of getting a, a coalition of actors involved in higher education to say, look, there's this overall problem. It's not this one university. It's not that one. It's a collective thing that we need to solve collectively. Hmm. Well, Richard, I, I really appreciate you calling in. And mm, the book is Mismatch, How Affirmative Action Hurts Students. It's intended to help and why universities won't admit it. I think now is as good a time as any. For everyone to go out and read this, um, it's it's really good stuff. I appreciate you uh, calling in and giving us giving us your expertise, Richard. Thanks. Thanks. It was great talking to you. I think what's interesting, SC, is as you look at this issue more and more, and you separate not just the debate on legality and principles, but the effects on the supposed beneficiaries. It creates this suspicion. It it creates this damage to the supposed beneficiaries. It's one Justice Clarence Thomas has talked about. It makes you question everyone's merits. Did you get here on your own? And there's no better example of this than Sonia Sotomayor herself mm-hmm. when she says that she thinks affirmative action helped her get into both Princeton and Yale. She says, my test scores were not comparable to that of my colleagues. And then what happened when she was applying for a big firm job at Yale? Firms came on campus and they said this to her. Would you have been admitted to the law school if you were not Puerto Rican? Sotomayor did not react well to that question. She lodged a complaint at Yale Law School. But that is the effect of affirmative action. It logically compels people to be suspicious of each other and their merits and how they got where they are. Well, yeah, and I think that goes to Richard's point about 
you know, he talked about three things that happen when you're mismatched. And the third one was that social interaction is less. Exactly. Because I think in large part of that suspicion or because there's a recognition of this academic separation and there's an insecurity there. I mean, again, we didn't have time to really go into all the effects. The book is so good on on this. And so people should read it. But. I'll tell you what, let's come back to this. We'll come back to it at the top of the next hour. We're bringing our friend Mark Lamont Hill to debate us on this. We need to get the perspective of someone who disagrees, who still thinks there's a role for affirmative action, that there's still a role for racial preferences. We'll do that at the top of the next hour. But next, coming up, we're going to have a little debate on whether or not you, as a gun supporter, a gun lover, see a limit, at least a practical limit to that. Yeah, you might be surprised to hear. Guns in bars, guns in churches, silencers on your hunting weapons. Is there a limit? Where is it? That on Kane and Cup when we come back. This is Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. on the Blaze Radio Network. At Will Kane on Twitter, at SE Cup on Twitter as well, 888-900-3393. Um, it is rare that I LOL, laugh out loud while reading The Economist. Okay. That happened to me this week, and it, not surprisingly, involved Canada. Okay. I'm just going to read. I, this doesn't need setup. This doesn't need any kind of context. I'm just going to read from the pages of The Economist. Tell me what's happening in our 51st state. Vancouver has banned doorknobs in all new buildings. It has provoked a strong reaction from the door-opening public. I would imagine. (laughs) And set off a chain reaction across the country. The war on doorknobs is part of a broader campaign to make buildings more accessible to the elderly and disabled, many of whom find levered door handles easier to operate than fiddly knobs. The rules have provoked grumbling about the nanny state, much of it from doorknob manufacturers. This is not The Economist. This is The Onion. True, elderly and disabled people find it easier to operate doors with handles, but so do bears. This is The Onion, correct? In British Columbia, (laughs) bears have been known to scavenge for food inside cars whose doors have handles. Knob advocates point out. (laughs) Knob advocates! Knob advocates! One newspaper columnist in the pro-knob camp. This would have a totally totally different context in England. I'd just like to point out. (laughs) One newspaper columnist in the pro-knob camp has noted that the velociraptors in Jurassic Park were able to open doors by their handles. This is not The Economist. I stand. This is not The Economist. You're looking at me. Read from The Economist. I I can't see you. I can't. (laughs) Do you hear that? Those are the pages of the esteemed Economist. Canada, you have too much time on your hands. You have pro-doorknob camps. There's and a pro-knob camp. I wonder if there's like a propaganda um, or like pro-choice, uh, anti-choice, you know, pro-life, anti-life. Is this there... is a movement I'm in not Canada. anti-doorknob. I'm pro-lever. <laughs> Canada 
Get a job. Canada, you have too much time on your hands. I love you, Canada. I love you. I really do. This is absurd. You know what I like Canada to imagine? Canada needs something to do. Do you know what I like to indulge in? What? That meeting at Parliament in the back rooms where they develop policy and somebody goes, yeah. hey, I got an idea. Right, right. <laughs> you know what's really bothering me right now? You know what's pissing doorknobs. me off? Doorknobs. You know where there's big money? Big doorknob money. <laughs> big doorknob. That's what we need. We need lobbyists for big doorknobs. What's going on here? I think he's got money coming in from the lever <laughs> lobby. <laughs> the lever lobby. I, honestly, go ahead, pick up The Economist. It's the April 19th edition. Russia's on the cover. You will not believe. And I was I was just pulling out the best quotes from this story. The story goes on and on and on. There it is. Canada, you got too much time on your hands. War on doorknobs in Canada. This is when you have to decide, are you pro-knob or pro-lever? It's a question everyone has to ask themselves at some point if they're Canadian. <laughs> when we come back on Cane and Cup, what is the practical limit of your gun support? 888-900-3393. We'll talk to you in a few minutes. Cane and Cup. You're listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. The next generation of talk radio, Kane and Cup, is on. I'm Essie Cup. And I'm Will Kane. I want to talk to you now about gun rights. Because I don't think I don't think our credentials, Will, on guns are in question. I think it's pretty clear we stand in favor of the Second Amendment. I am I'm a gun nut. You've become, I think. Probably, in most people's minds, the NRA's number one cheerleader. Oh, I don't mind that. I don't <laughs> mind that. I mean, for a number of reasons that we don't have to get into now, this is an important issue for me. Anyway, yes. so I, I say that, I say that, putting my credentials out there, which I think are impeccable. <laughs> impeccable. I am unimpeachable on this issue. Because I think it's beneficial once in a while when you think that you are wholly, wholly supportive and invested in something. To challenge, now and then, how far you think you would go. Okay. Put a pin in that. I want to I go to some breaking news. Oh. This is breaking gun news. Wish we had. Bum, 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 bum. That was a ticker. That's good. Okay. Breaking news is Tom Ridge has resigned from Mayor Bloomberg's every town anti-gun group. Tom Ridge has resigned saying I'm uncomfortable with the mission of every town. Tom Ridge, who was, aside from Michael Bloomberg, the biggest sort of face 
And I think someone uh, kind of uh, who lent some credibility to this organization is already, already uncomfortable with the mission. Hashtag Everytown. Hashtag Suck at Bloomberg. <laughs> wow. This breaking is news. That was um, your breaking news. Can I say this is vindication to a point oh. for you that you have made on numerous occasions, and that is the point of Bloomberg's efforts with Everytown is not – as it was previously named, to fight illegal guns. No. It was not about mayors against illegal guns. It was rather, as Bloomberg quite honestly said, to rival the NRA, which meant by proxy to have a strong lobbying effort against legal gun owners. I can only assume where Tom Ridge's discomfort came yeah. from. Yeah. I can only assume what he saw in those back rooms reflected exactly the point you were making, which yeah. is you're going after legal law-abiding gun owners. Yes, well, I mean, just just for a point of comparison, he didn't look to ban illegal sodas. He banned sodas. Right. He didn't look to ban illegal salt. We all know what illegal salt looks like. He wanted to ban salt. Right. He didn't look to ban illegal smoking. He wanted to ban smoking. So I know, I know what Michael Bloomberg is up to. <laughs> And I'm just glad that Tom Ridge, my friend Tom Ridge, saw through this sham of an effort and said, I want nothing to do with it. Hashtag suck at Bloomberg. That was your breaking news. That was your breaking news. Now let's move on because I like to explore. Now back to our regular scheduled program. Yeah. I like to explore and test my own boundaries. How far would you go for the Second Amendment? We have a couple cases to go over here. The first case that I submit to you. Okay. The NRA is, I think, because gun owners and gun rights groups have had a very successful year, the NRA is now trying to push for a federal expansion of reciprocity rights. Now, to explain what that means, would you like to, would you like to explain or do you want me to explain to our, our listeners what reciprocity means? Essentially, state to state, you have different laws deciding whether Say, for example, part of this is is concealed carry. Some states are shall issue concealed carry licenses. Some are shall not. Some are may issue. And you don't know where you are in the country uh, if your permit to carry a weapon is acknowledged by the next or neighboring state. The question is whether or not the state of Oklahoma will recognize your state of Texas gun permit. Or for that matter, once you cross another state line into the state of Kansas, will they recognize your state of Texas gun permit? As you cross from state to state, will the issuer's permit be recognized? Well, yeah, and it's, I mean, concealed carry and, and, and carry permits are, I think, the big part of reciprocity. But it's also, as a gun owner, very confusing when I go into another state with my gun. The laws completely change. All of the laws, it feels like. All of them completely change. Um, you know, when I was keeping my guns in Connecticut and I lived in New York City and I had to fly to Alaska, I had to ship my guns because I can't actually drive them from Connecticut into the city to get to the airport. And we have all of these stories that you've heard of, of gun owners checking their guns appropriately in accordance with TSA regulations. They get laid over somewhere. They get sort of diverted to an airport in a city where the rules are different, and they get get fined. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, it seems like federal and state governments really go out of their way to make examples out of people who are unfamiliar with the changing laws. And they say, well, that's no excuse. When you go to another state, you got to learn those traffic laws. 
you know what? It's really burdensome. And so what the NRA is pushing for here is to streamline the reciprocity rules. But there's a catch here. There's something that I'm a little uncomfortable with in this. And it's not it's it's not what the NRA is doing and it's not with the idea of streamlining this. I would appreciate that. As a conservative who almost always opposes federally expanding, sweeping legislation and always champions states' rights, I'm a little uncomfortable with this huge piece of federal legislation. And I think all conservatives, if they're being honest, should be a little uncomfortable with it. Absolutely. Um, This is not about gun advocacy. This is not about the Second Amendment, actually. This is about the concept of federalism. And I don't think the answer to our fights lies in Washington, D.C. I don't think the answer is to have one-size-fits-all federal solutions to our problems. The whole point of states was to be, as it was said, little laboratories of democracy, where you would have different laws, patchworks of a legal experiment, experiments. Um, and I think I, I, I buy somewhat the argument. As you move from one state to the next, the traffic laws change, the laws on everything change, and it is incumbent upon you to understand them. I don't think the answer to laws you dislike is to go to Washington, D.C. and say, fix this for me. Yeah, and I can't think of another issue on which we would want, we would champion federal expansion of protections. I can't, I can't think of it. I mean, you, you and I, I go back to this all the time. You and I are in favor of gay rights. The new front on the gay rights debate is federal anti-discrimination laws. Mm-hmm. Which ignore the fact that there are already state and local anti-discrimination laws. Now they want federal anti-discrimination laws. Something like Equal Pay, something like Lily Ledbetter, something like the Violence Against Women Act. Violence Against Women, as we've said, is already legal in all 50 states. Federal legislation doesn't really solve a problem. It just centralizes power and money. Jeez, you don't have to make a federal case out of it. <laughs> anyway, where so, that came from. Well, Exactly. This is a local issue. And I think you can solve issues like the one you describe about planes being diverted. You can you can solve that in other ways. I think so too. Look, I you know, I'm not I'm not solved on this, but I think it's a good test of like where I where I put my conservative values, okay, right? Okay, so you found a limit. I and found a- I found a limit. Now, that's not to say I'm going to oppose I'm going to oppose this, but I'm a little uncomfortable with it. A little uncomfortable with it as a conservative. So federalism Provide you the limits to that part of your... Okay, case number two. Got it. Georgia, the state. Uh, Nathan Deal, the governor there, signed into law, was bipartisan legislation that vastly expanded gun protections for citizens there. Um, Critics are calling it the guns everywhere law because basically it says you can bring a gun into churches, bars, some government buildings some schools, uh, the original legislation that was that was not signed, that was tossed out, was you must. You must have guns in schools and churches. And, and now it's left up to the establishments to say, yes, we will allow guns here. Yes, we will allow teachers to carry guns. Or no, we won't. Not mu- not, not you must carry your gun to church. Not you must carry your no, gun no, to no, the no, bar. No, no, you must allow. You must allow. You must allow, right. Not compulsory. Let you me explain pack. you something. Before you walk into that church house, if you don't have a gun on you, then you better turn around and go home. Yeah. No, not not quite that. Not quite that. Right. 
Um, what's left out? A campus carry provision. I was disappointed because as much as this gun bill covers, I am very passionate about allowing campuses, uh, students on campus, to carry concealed weapons. I don't know why we are disarming, categorically disarming, especially our female students, when one in five will be raped over the course of their four years in college. I, I don't, I, I'm, I'm passionate. That was left out. So basically, the big, the big crux of this Georgia bill is that you can legally carry firearms in a wide range of new places. All right, so this is not a limit for me. I like this law. Mm-hmm. I like yeah. allowing citizens the freedom and business owners the freedom to dictate what will happen in their establishments. You know, I don't want to go to a bar that allows guns. I'm going to be honest with you. Because why? You well, know a bunch of like Texas knuckleheads, right? Like your friends that you would not want drinking with guns. Yeah, and it's not theoretical. It's not <laughs> abstract for me. And I'm there are stories where we wouldn't be talking about my friends. Oh, we'd be talking about you. We'd be talking about me. I... I <laughs> I uh, there's been a get off my lawn incident. Nice, <laughs> you're too young for that. No, I mean, I, you know, fire the shotgun in the air, get off my lawn. Uh, wow, yeah, uh, t- to friends. Yeah, alcohol, guns, alcohol, bad, 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 right? Not not good idea. Bad. So I don't want to go to a bar where um you get to have your guns, but that's my choice. If the gu- if the the bar wants to allow that to happen, fine. I'll select get a different not, bar. You, yeah, you get to not go to that bar. Right. So I want a law that allows that freedom of choice on that on that that debate. Yeah, but there's a level of discomfort. Here's another one. Some courthouses. You're going to be a juror. You're going into a courthouse where other jurors can potentially carry guns into that courthouse. Does that make you feel, uh, to me, that would make me feel more safe in a courthouse. That would would make me feel more safe. But I don't know. Some people might not feel that way. Heated arguments. Heated arguments. Criminal defense cases. Yep. So there might be a level of discomfort there, but I agree with you on this. I get to choose. Well, there's not, there are not other options on the courthouse debate. You know, it's not like the bar debate, actually, on that one. There's only one courthouse only one courtroom that case is taking place in. So that debate is not about choice. That's about whether or not you're safer or less safe with everyone in the room being armed, potentially. If they were. Right, right, right. Let's do this. Let's take a break. Let's continue this debate. You've got another example for us on pushing yeah. our limits on gun control. Uh, we got a few calls. Let's get to that. What is the limit of your support for guns? Practically, not legally. What is your su- limit? Put your limit passion your aside. We're yeah. all passionate. 888-900-3393 on Kane and Cup when we come back. Will Kane and Desi Cup will continue in a moment on the Blaze Radio Network. Eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. Kane and Cup returns now. Wow, you just missed Will Kane dancing to that tune. That was a sight, man. Love it, man. Love that tune. That was a sight. Like Carlton music, so I did a Carlton dance. Sort Remember of. Carlton? From yeah, of course. Fresh Prince of Bel Air. Yeah, I'm a human. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course, I do. Um, so we're talking about guns, and if there are limits to your Second Amendment support. I'd like to think there are not, but there are. 
And there should be. You're not being intellectually honest with yourself if you don't frequently challenge how far you think you would go. I've got one more example for you. And that is another part of this Georgia bill. It's called the uh, the Guns Everywhere bill by critics. Because basically it lets you have um, bring guns into churches and schools and bars and other places that in other states you might not be able to. Just want to point out, bipartisan bill, even Democrat grandson of Jimmy Carter, Jason Carter, who's running for governor, voted for this bill. Said he agreed with this bill. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's how awesome and crazy Georgians are for their guns. Um, I've got one more example for you real quick. Part of this bill also legalizes the use of silencers silencers for hunting. Mm -hmm. I do not like this. I do not mind this. Okay. This bothers me tremendously. Right. Um, As a hunter, I like to know where other hunters are. And when I'm in the woods and I hear a rifle or shotgun go off, I am aware that there are other hunters in the woods. The idea that there is a hunter five feet from me and I might not know it, five feet's an exaggeration. I was going to say, if that's silencer is the only thing messing you up there? No, that's an exaggeration. Then you're not much of a hunter. 50 feet? 50 feet from me and I might not know it? That freaks me out. I'm used to deep woods, New England, Northeast deer hunting, where you can't see 10 feet in front of you because there's woods. Right. You know what's funny is that your your experience and my experience with hunting, I think, leads us to, in, to some extent in different directions on this. My hunting is either Texas, pri- private property, where right. you have control over who's on that land. Right. Or in Montana, I spent some time up there, where it's huge, wide expanse and long line of sight hunting. Right. And I don't need to hear a, a gunshot. I, I assume you're not around. But, but, but that uh, is the difference. Yeah. That is plains hunting and private land hunting. I've done both as well. That That's different. But if you're in the woods on public land, the only thing that lets me know if someone else is around is hearing that shotgun go off. I don't mind you creeping up on that Ooh, guy with the silence rifle. No, rifles. that scared me. That scared me. All right. Well, we found some limits. I'm proud of us for challenging some of our basic assumptions. Let's have a debate on affirmative action. We have been agreeing with each other. All day. I'm going to puke. <laughs> Don't bring somebody in who disagrees with us. When we come back on Canaan Cup, Mark Lamont Hill will join us on Canaan Cup. You're listening to Canaan Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. Radio Network. Donna Chang? I should have talked to her. I love Chinese women. Isn't that a little racist? If I like their race, how can that be racist? I mean, in a nutshell, that is the defense of affirmative action. Yeah. I'm not a racist. I like their race. I want to help their race. But you are discriminating based on, but I like the race. But you're still discriminating based on race. But I'm into the race. (laughs) I'm into it. We spent the morning agreeing on the effects of affirmative action on the supposed beneficiaries of affirmative action. We've spent the morning agreeing on the constitutional, legal, and principle-based foundations of of opposition to affirmative action. I'm tired of agreeing with you this morning. I'm done with it. Me? Yeah, you. It is annoying. I want to do this. 
I want to bring in our friend, CNN contributor, host on HuffPo Live, professor at Columbia University, former sparring partner of Bill O'Reilly, Mark Lamont Hill. Now, Mark, I'm looking, at my, I'm looking at my call screen. My two favorite white people. Do you know how much I must listen to <laughs> do the radio at, at, at 11 a.m. on a Saturday? You have to like us to do it? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, radio on the, the weekend. What would you normally be doing right now? Uh, I don't. I'm reading a book. That's such liar, BS. liar, <laughs> liar. <laughs> did you also? Like can I just? Did you tell our sweet, sweet call screener Brian to type in Doctor Mark Lamont Hill? Did you come here and just fancy pants us up right from the call screen going forward? You know, I find people who use Doctor to be obnoxious in general. I would never do that. But um, for an affirmative action conversation, I needed a little extra. I, might need a little extra <laughs> I like it. I like it. I texted you. I said, "Hey, man, you you support affirmative action, right?" And you said you texted back, "Of course." Yeah. <laughs> All right. Of why? Course. Go. Why? Be- because I have good sense. It's it's reasonable. It's a reasonable position to take. I think. Um, I think that when you have institutional inequality for a very long time, something must be done to redress that. And for me, affirmative action is a way of doing that. The other reason is that I, I think it, it benefits white people, quite honestly. Um, people off the narrative of affirmative action is that, you know, white people are somehow deprived of access to institutions because of uh, the consideration of race, say, in, a, in an application for college. My argument is that if you have a school that has 90% white people or 98% white people, like some of these schools did before affirmative action, the school is missing out. There's empirical evidence, there's scientific empirical evidence in particular, that shows that schools do better, that organizations do better, that institutions do better when they're diverse, that diverse groups, that uh, heterogeneous groups come to more interesting and dynamic and complex solutions. But, and, and, all right, Mark, but here's the deal. All the beneficiaries, yeah. all the benefits you're pointing to, the the uh, solution to institutional racism that might have been in place, the supposed benefits of having a diverse student body are abstractions that apply to, like you described it, schools, right? Um, right. It doesn't apply to individuals, and college is a zero-sum game. There's only so many seats. So if you're letting some people in based upon some merits, you are denying other people on the same by the same token. So you are talking about these benef- benefits to abstract things like the school or to alleviate institutional racism at the detriment to individuals. Right, but the, the problem with that argument is that it presumes that there are these unqualified applicants who are getting in over qualified applicants. The truth is... Every, most, not most people, but a big chunk of people who, who, who apply to Harvard and Yale are qualified. And a whole bunch of people, irrespective of their race, get denied access to, to Harvard and Yale just because there's a finite number of spaces. So at all times, somebody's getting in or not getting in based on, uh, you know, whether they're captain of the debate team or whether or not they grew up in Iowa versus New York because we have too many New York applicants. So to consider race doesn't deny, doesn't deny a qualified applicant a spot for someone who's unqualified. The overarching point here is that all the time, a whole bunch of people don't get into Harvard who are qualified to be in the Harvard. And I'm saying we have to consider race as a factor, just like other factors, to make sure that the school is balanced and diverse. But, Mark, you very passionately laid out a history of evidence proving that diverse groups are, are better, uh, more productive, more creative, better. Yeah. But there's also a long history of evidence proving that affirmative action actually punishes minorities. And earlier in the show, we had a guest on who wrote a book called Mismatch. Uh, He's a liberal and a professor who studied the history of affirmative action. And he talks about how 
uh, affirmative action is a detriment to some minority, many minority applicants, because it puts them into untenable situations, into into places where the competition is not what they expected. They actually learn less. In many cases, they get discouraged. They drop out. The social interaction, the thing that you want the most out of this is less because there's this academic gulf uh, separating separating students. We should be, instead of plucking students out of relative obscurity and putting them in into high competition, uh, high intensity environments, we should be training our students better at the K through 12 level so that everyone is prepared for the kinds of academic opportunities that they're seeking. How can you disagree with all of that evidence? Okay, so I'll start with the last point and go backwards. I agree that we should be training people better at K-12. It's not an either-or proposition. It's a both-and proposition. We can do affirmative action and do better on K-12 to create educational opportunities. But why would we need affirmative action if we do better at K-12 through to prepare all of our students better for college? Well, because even even if we had a magic pill that could fix K-12 education right now, there would still be an entire generation of people who wouldn't have access to higher to higher, Why? higher education at the high school well, because they're in kindergarten now. And, and, and it would be even if we could fix schools in a, in a year, which obviously we couldn't, it would still take 12 years for that kindergartner to, to have what you. So would what if I told you we could have affirmative action for 12 more years, but that's it? Well, you, you would have to make a compelling argument that we could fix society in 12 years. But I don't here's the thing. I don't want affirmative action forever any more than anyone else does. I want affirmative action as long as it's needed. So, yes, if you could convince me that in 12 years affirmative action were no longer needed, I would stand in line with you at the front of the line to end it. Uh, you also made another point about the social dimensions. Then I'll talk about the academic piece. The social dimensions are interesting, but but they're not reducible to affirmative action. If you look at all the evidence, even when kids grow up in the same neighborhood, have the same grades, and have the same uh, 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 SAT scores going into college, they still feel socially isolated at places like uh, Williams or Amherst or Yale or Harvard or or, or wherever. Uh, it's not it's not simply about their achievement. It's also about um, it's also about race. It's also about class issues when, it, when class isn't controlled for. There's lots of reasons why black kids feel awkward in school, like the fact that there's only four other black people. That often does it. Um, as far as the perception piece of the social dimension, which is to say, you know, if you go to school for affirmative action, people don't think you're smart, or the, te- the professors don't think you're going to be as smart as the other kids, and so they treat you differently. Well, it's not as if there was this long legacy of, a, of, of white people thinking black people were smart before affirmative action. It wasn't like the 1800s and 1900s were like this place where people thought black people were brilliant, and then affirmative action came. No, it's quite the opposite. So if, I'm, if you're going to think I'm stupid anyway, I'd rather, I'd rather you think I'm stupid from the quad at Harvard than you think I'm stupid at community college. <laughs> yeah, but it's not so much the professor thinking you're stupid or other students thinking you're stupid. It's it's that the student thinks he or she is stupid. The student thinks he or she can't compete because the student has the knowledge that he or she was selected because of his or her race to go into an academic environment that maybe otherwise, in the back of this student's mind, he might not be totally qualified for. It's the there's student's evidence, insecurity. Yes, evidence that shows that when, when students think that their race is a factor in the decision-making process, um, or, or that they're actually the evidence doesn't show it. The evidence shows that in, in, in a stereotype threat, the work done by um, by uh, Claude Steele is the best evidence of this. Shows that when kids are taking high stakes testing, you know, state regents exams, SATs, or things, if they think that that their race is being considered, or that or that they're being seen as representatives of their race, that their performance will affect how people see their race, they tend to do less less well on tests. That's true. It's also true for white kids when they think that their score is going to be compared against Asian kids. It's right. just a fact, but that doesn't mean that I wouldn't want to put white kids into engineering programs where white people are, un- are underrepresented. That has less to do with affirmative action and more to do also with the institutional 
narratives we tell. In other words, schools don't have to make you feel like an affirmative action kid. Schools don't have to make you feel like you're there only because you're black, because you're not. The black kids who get into Harvard on affirmative action are still two degrees higher and have still, still have two standard deviations higher on SATs than the average American. Yeah, but Mark, but here's the point. Here's the point in the end. You admit that, that affirmative action and college admissions is a zero-sum game. And you admit you suggest we need to use no, no, race— No, no, no. I'm admitting all admissions is a zero-sum game. Fine. All admissions are a zero-sum game. But by this, by this rationale that race should matter, that race should be factored in, what you're doing is imposing a superficial factor, a superficial filter on how you're going to view and admit students. And by that token, you are going to be denying some students— because of that fact that they cannot change the color of their skin. And it's not just white kids, by the way. It could be, it's not just white kids. It could be Asian kids. It could be anything. As long as you make race the definer, one of the factors, you're going to be denying people because of their race. Right, but, I, all, but all college admissions factors are, are, are superficial or they're arbitrary. They're subjective. For example, you're more likely to get in if you were part of a club in school. There's no evidence. There's absolutely no empirical evidence to show that being a member of the 4-H club at your neighborhood high school is going to make you a better fit at Harvard. Um, the SAT score, every sociological study, every educational study for the last 50 years has shown that the SAT is not a predictor of um, – of SAT scores. Oh, excuse me, SAT scores are not a predictor of college performance, particularly uh, over the four-year period. It's only really a predictor of how you do in the first semester. So there's nothing more wildly inaccurate or... or, or right, but I thought and I hoped we'd arrived. I thought and hoped we'd arrived at a place where race will also not define your future. Well, race will also not be the way we dictate your path in life. Right, but, but again, the, the problem is if we take race out, what we know, as, as a, according to history and really even the current moment, is that without that as a factor, these institutions won't be as diverse. And those schools not being as diverse will also poorly impact the education of the white kids in the school. So the white kids that got in. The white kids that got in. Right. All right. So it's not what about, but, but Mark, Mark, should, and real quick, should places like uh, Spelman or other historically black colleges, should those be more diverse? Yeah, they should be more. Well, should they? That's a good question. Should they be more diverse? I think they should be as diverse as the need is. If white kids want to go to Spelman, they should have every right to go to Spelman and Harvard. And when I attended, I attended Morehouse College, and there right. were white guys there. And I find that if white people have the grades and have the SAT scores, they get in. And Mark, they don't have the grades, they still get in. You're my favorite think, black person. You oh, I love you for saying that. <laughs> on TV. Can we talk on TV sometime soon? I hear there's this airplane thing that happens. <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll all be back on CNN by midterms. I'm not holding my breath. <laughs> I won't hold my breath either. <laughs> Thanks for we calling in, We love you, man. Mark. Thanks for calling in. Rob. All right. When we come back, we've explored limits. Limits to your support for guns. Limits on affirmative action. What about limits on tattoos? What? Limits on tattoos. No limits. Is there any limit to your support for tattoos? Next on Kane and Cobb. <laughs> You're listening to Kane and Cobb on the Blaze Radio Network. Listening to Kane and Cup. I'm Essie Cup. I'm Will Kane. Will Kane, you don't have any tattoos. I have no tattoos. I have a tattoo. Um, just one. It's small. It's on my leg. You can look it up. It's on the internet. Uh, <laughs> oh, don't ever say that again. Don't. If, ever I mean, if people are really, again. if people are really curious, it's been it's been documented on the internet. I I don't need to get into it. I'm not actually big into tattoos. Um, I got this tattoo. 
uh, a number of years ago, which is not to say that I regret it or I I made a very conscious decision to get this tattoo. I still love my tattoo. I have no plans to get another tattoo, but I don't have strong feelings about tattoos either way. Apparently, the Army does. No. This is a new thing. The Army has uh, released some new rules on tattoos, and honestly, they are a head-scratcher. The first, the first thing is troops with extensive visible tattoos can stay in the Army, <laughs> luckily, but you can't get any new ones, and you face restrictions on your career advancement. And if you're not in the Army, you can't have certain tattoos and get into the Army. Th- these are some specifics. The new rules forbid tattoos on the head, face, neck, hands, fingers, and wrists. Okay. Allow no more than four hand-sized tattoos below the elbow and knee. Okay. So arbitrary. Hand size. Prohibit sleeve tattoos that cover a person's entire arm. That would kind of go with what the below the mean? elbow part. I think they got that covered. Bans sexist, racist, indecent, or extremist tattoos. Also, that is vague. That is vague. Bars enlisted soldiers from requesting commissions as officers if they have tattoos that already violate the new policies. Hmm. So you're screwed, right? You got a stupid tattoo when you were 18. You're in the military. You're fighting in the army. You can't become an officer if you already have one of these tattoos that goes exist uh, goes against the new policy. It requires commanders to document any tattoos that violate the new rules among current so- soldiers and orders commanders to check their soldiers for new tattoos every year. Holy hell! I want to bring in someone um, who can talk about this. Good friend of mine, Terry Shepard. He is a Special Forces soldier. Terry is also hosting the Edison Awards on April 30th, and he's about to start taping his second season of Dude, You're Screwed on the Discovery Channel. Terry, explain this nonsense to me. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We got to put Terry's qualifications out there. Terry, I just did. you did not mention is also heavily tattooed. Tattooed? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Like, and I have a bunch of those, too. So I guess I got something to say about that. Well, you talk to I mean? me, Terry. What's that? Talk to me. I don't understand this. What's the yeah, rationale listen, behind listen, these new rules? There's, there's, there's a few things. Uh, this is kind of what happens now is the military, is, as I call it, kind of drawing into more of a peacetime military. Um, you know, I call it the dog chasing its tail. This is when they're going to become concerned with things like uniform, haircuts, tattoos. Doorknobs. Really what, what they need to do now, right, what they need to do now is kind of filter it. So, so you know, a few years ago, they were taking guys with all sorts of tattoos because the war was at its height. Not so much now. Uh, it, listen, the two things. Uh, actually, you said something, Effie, uh, that made me think. A lot of guys, the thing that bothers me the most about it is that there are a lot of guys in the combat military, and I've been in the combat military my whole life, and tattoos are kind of part of the culture. Mm. A lot of guys in the combat military have names of their friends who were killed or they fought alongside, and mm. I've, I've seen a lot of them, and they're really amazing pieces of work, kind of tribute tattoos, and they're all over their body. You're telling me now that that guy has no hope, if he wants to, of ever becoming an officer. It seems so arbitrary to me, and can we really be that picky? I mean, are we really at a point where we can start saying, based on your body art, you can and cannot serve? Well, I mean, I guess so. Now, I've always, I've always subscribed to the idea, though, that as a military guy, you shouldn't have, you know, big neck tattoos and ones that come up on your head and your wrist and your hands, because 
you should be able to wear a dress uniform or even like a utility uniform, like BDU type things, and not can not be able to see that you have tattoos. That, oh, so I you you have a limit, Terry. So you just laid out some of it: the neck tattoo, the hand tattoo. That's, I would assume. I think that's legitimate. That's yeah, and I, th- I would assume some piercings would also qualify. So, mm-hmm. but what is it about these guidelines that went over your limit? What went too far here? Yeah, well, I think the ones where they're talking about you know the sleep because my my whole right arm is done. So, like, right now, I mean, I'm, I'm an old, beat-up Green Beret. I'm near the end of my career. But if I was a young guy and had that, well, first of all, like you said, if you, I, I, can't be, I can't even get into military right. that now. And if I wanted to advance my career as an officer, which never interested me, but if you did, you can't do that. So I guess the thing is, like, I, it, it, we're talking now about tattoos that aren't even visible when someone's wearing their uniform. That's a problem because up till then I, I get it. Like we're, we're army guys, we're not supposed to. It's it's not an expression of creativity to be in the military, but it is an expression kind of of our culture, and it, that is kind of a warrior culture. Our tattoos. Now I, I know a lot of guys in the Green Berets with me who have no tattoos, mm-hmm. so that's not like you have to get them. But a lot of guys get them, and it's something I really like, and they all have meaning to me uh, as well. They're not like you know, just like sort of spur of the moment things. Uh, so the problem is really that is it. We're talking now about keeping guys. So basically, also every year we got to get we got to stand naked in front of our commanders, I mm. guess, and have them give us like you know a body exam and go, hey, you got a new tattoo? You like what are they going to do actually if a guy does that? And I'm, not I'm and curious. not and you have to stand there naked. And according to these guidelines, also some of them are subjectively about whether or not they're racist or sexist or offensive as well. So I guess there will be a an artistic judge standing next to your commanding officer to make these these kind of uh, judgments. Yeah, that's also scary. And and uh, you guys said that in the beginning. I mean, the the vaguer this kind of, this sort of stuff is, who's the one judging that? Mm-hmm. And you know, if you're like, I think listen. I, there's there's a there's a lot of different aspects of the army. There's the combat guys, and then there's a lot of support units that have you know male and female integration, and they're great. They're, they're, I mean, they're they're vital to what we do, but they're not necessarily the ones doing the fighting. Like, who's going to beat that commander in that unit? What if they're like somehow sensitive to that? Image? Something, like, yeah. yeah. You know, swastikas, uh, Terry swastikas, hateful stuff. Yeah, come on, that's obvious. But like. I don't know. Well, look, if it's between if it's between tattoos and uh, sexual assault in the military, I think we we all know which problem needs solving before the other. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Terry. Hey, look, good. Good luck hosting the Edison Awards and good luck with second season of Dude, You're Screwed on Discovery. We'll be watching. I hope so. Thanks for having me on Saturday morning. I will talk to you guys soon. All right. Thanks, thanks, Terry. All right. Stay tuned. We're coming back with more Kane and Cup after this. This is Kane and Cup, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. Cup. Welcome back to Kane and Cup. I'm Essie Cup. And I'm Will Kane. Uh, you know, I'm a columnist for the Daily News. Yes, I know that. Yep. So I often go through the Daily News just looking at other stories. And I came across a real gem. Well, a real gem this week. I'm ready. Okay. There's a New Jersey cardiologist. I will name him. His name is Zayed Yunin. Okay. And he racked up. Racked up. A hundred and thirty-five thousand dollar bill at Scores Strip Club. Get it? He racked it up. I got it. I got it. I got it. One hundred and thirty-five 
thousand dollars. Wow. Now he went. Wait, it gets better. He went four times over ten days. Okay. Okay. Now he has he has not paid this bill because because he says he didn't go, but if he did, he must have been drugged all four times. He's trying the Eddie Murphy defense. Wasn't me. Wasn't me. Wasn't me. I wasn't there, but if I was, I was drugged. On all four occasions? All four accounts. Now, the wasn't me defense, I wasn't there, not cool, because the club has him on video. He was there. Most of us assume this is the case. Four times. Four times. Four times. Um, And I guess is refusing to pay this tab or is trying to get out of it. I thought we'd go to the source on this. And the source is not Zayed Union, but the source is Scores. And we're lucky enough, we've got not just anyone from Scores. We've got the Scores COO. That's right. right. Scores has a COO. His name is Mark Yakow, and he joins us now. Mark, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so this guy's a tool, obviously. But my first my first concern is, you videotape people there? No. What we do is we have cameras, of course, cameras throughout the club. A lot of it on the point-to-sale system, making sure everything is being rung up. And within certain areas of the club. They're not in any of the champagne slash private rooms. I would assume that, not, Mark. Mark. Mark, that was on my list of questions to ask you, actually. <laughs> so we can we do not need to operate under the premises that there are cameras in the champagne room? Absolutely. Then it wouldn't be a private room. Right, Absolutely. right. Absolutely. Right, so what are you going to do to get this guy? Because obviously, the I mean, the evidence is, is pretty clear in your favor. Yeah, um, we tried to, you know, we discussed it with American Express and... Uh, they had the right to, you know, not pay us. So we took the legal route of suing him. We tried <laughs> yeah. to reach out to him and say, listen, come in, look at the video. You're here. You've got four or five girls around you. You have our general manager. Uh, I also just recently found out that one of our security guys that, you know, works the area, makes sure everything's okay. He had just called me the other day when he saw the story. He wasn't aware of all this. And he said to me, that's interesting. When he went out a few times to go to the bathroom, he was talking to me. He even invited me to go to a uh, a giant football game with him and gave me his cell number. Sounds drugged. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah, very. very. <laughs> I mean, listening listening to you, when I was listening to you talk, I was saying to myself, I started to laugh. I said, who would believe something like this? Um, no one. But his, his story was these girls came to either his apartment or a hotel room. What? They drugged him took his credit card, took his passport, because we have copies of everything, and had a party there what? without him. And, of course, four times? Four times, yes. Four times. Hey, Mark, how does one how does one rack up a $135,000 bill? Uh, and be specific. And way, j- yeah, just, just let you know, it was four different dates, but one date went into the other, like it was before midnight to the other. So it was really three physical days he was Okay. Here. Okay. Um, but how it happens is, and it wasn't on the liquor, Hmm. And it wasn't. We have separate charges for everything. If you're having, did he order a thousand steaks? No, no. Okay. He had five to seven girls in the room for four or five hours. That'll do it. That's that's where all the bulk of the money goes to to the entertainers. It wasn't the alcohol. It wasn't the room. And the other thing, just the way we do our procedure here is, procedure. we don't give someone a bill at the end of the five hours or four hours or three hours. Every hour or every half hour that he renews a transaction. The amount of money he gives the girls, he signs for. Oh, so you try to help the consumer get out of his own way. Like, <laughs> like we're going to give you a chance. 
to stop and walk away now. And you keep giving that consumer the chance over the hours because you don't want someone at the end of five hours saying, oh, I didn't know how much I was racking up. Exactly. Just like you've been there. Um, (laughs) In fact, I have. (laughs) So four or five hours, Mark. Four or five hours. Let me ask you this. This, I'm I'm full of curiosity now. What's the biggest bill you've seen racked up in your time at Scores? Uh, Almost a quarter of a million dollars. (gasps) Was that a famous person? I know. To me, he was. Uh, (laughs) 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 No, uh, it was over one night. In one night? Yeah. Yeah. Now, t- how do you what do that? Was that length of, of time? That was number of girls and length of time? So he had that private room again, like you're talking about, for like 10 hours or something? Uh, five, six hours. But again, they might have closed on a big deal. They tip, you know, on oh. top of paying them their normal fee. They tip and they tip the staff. And, uh, you know, spending, as the stock did, an average of between, you know, thirty and 50000 each night <sighs> is not unusual. Now let me ask you. But let me ask you this: all the time, but it's not unusual. How often do angry wives come in trying to catch their guy in the action? Do you see a lot of that? Never. Never. Come on. No. Never. How often do people make it rain? (laughs) You know, it's interesting uh, because our club in New York is much more of a gentleman's club. You know, it's more upscale. It's more. People sitting in the champagne, getting lap dances on the floor mm-hmm. uh, or in the champagne rooms. We have about 20 of them there. But it does happen on a, on a weekend night. Uh, you get a lot of couples, a lot of uh, individual guys that sit around the stage and, you know, make it rain on dollar bills. <laughs> so the New York is upscale compared to what? Um a lot of we consider ourselves an upscale gentleman's clubs. There are a lot of other clubs that we consider, you know, are more strip clubs. Right. Listen, uh, I, I can help you out with have. this, Mark. I this I, I I know I have friends, right? So you know people. <laughs> I, I mean, there might have been I, I've I've heard of BYOB strip clubs. So right, uh, like like outside What's of Waco, BYOB? Texas, being your own beer. Oh. So, so like there are BYOB. definitely upscale and downscale strip clubs. Let's, that's that's clear. Absolutely. Okay, and scores now, we'll, is up, uh, upscale. So on that note, and since we brought up the idea of famous people, uh, Mark, who's the most famous person you've kicked out of scores? Hmm. Well, that I can't tell you. The one thing we we pride ourselves on, and you'll probably we you'll probably never see us in the paper when a when a uh, a celebrity comes in and they're having a good time and spending money. We make sure they stay out of the paper. Discretion. Put them in the paper. Absolutely. But you will get in the paper if you refuse to pay a hundred and thirty-five thousand dollar bill and say that you were drugged. Absolutely. Yeah, you will. That's all of a sudden you guys are ready to talk. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. You know, it's funny. He has supposed what we've heard through this. He has, as a cardiologist, he has a twin brother and a dad who are cardiologists at the same hospital as him. And the question was asked to me: Do you think they're aware of you know him being sued? I said, now they are. There's definitely they're aware of it now. Yeah. So they went to try to interview them, and of course, they. I think the dad said in the paper, you know, my son is you know 40 years old, single, and he goes to the city a lot. I don't know what he does, mm. and that was their response. Let uh-huh. me ask you this, Mark, so. on a very serious note: um, Do you have a list of pre-approved names that the girls can select from, 
do you have editorial authority over the name? Right, or do they come up with their own? There's a lot of yeah. spice genre and flower genre names I, I encounter. So I'm wondering if they're selecting from pre-approved list. No, they they come up with their own name. <laughs> they that's their you know they use their imagination and sometimes they'll change it. They said didn't work for me this time, you know. Oh, like uh, tonight I was cinnamon. It didn't go so well. Tomorrow night I'll be curry. Absolutely. <laughs> they come up with names of cars. Also, you you always see oh. a Mercedes, a Porsche. Oh um, God, the psychological effort that must go absolutely. into figuring out what a guy will respond to with the name and the outfit and the dance and the and the banter. I mean, that is it is an art, man. You know, it's interesting. There was a, a young lady that was. Uh, from the Midwest, and she was, I, I forgot her dance name at the time. I said, you know, you should call yourself Dorothy, you know, from the Wizard of Oz. Nice. And she started doing that, and she said, you know, it's working. <laughs> Mark, you are not United. just a COO. You are a talent manager. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> uh, Mark, we appreciate you joining us today. Um, you know, this is a fascinating story. Um, we hope it works out. Um, we hope justice is served. Let's put it that way. Whatever is the right side on this case, we hope justice is served. Well, I appreciate it. I Thanks, thank Mark. Hey, listen, me on. call in any time. Yeah, we have more way, questions. I'd like to make an invitation to you. I'd love you to come to the club and see uh, what it's all about. Uh, I'll, I'm happy to come again. <laughs> <laughs> See, I knew you were there. Absolutely. I've been there. All right. Thanks, Mark. We appreciate it. You got it. Take care. We didn't ever. I've, yeah. What? Uh, just more questions. Oh, I know. You could go all day. You could go more all questions. day with that guy. That, the, yeah. He was very nice to call in and, and help us and help us work through this. Um, I bet you don't know which presidents have been the most successful. Oh, hard right turn. In the realm of procreation. Okay. <laughs> and unsuccessful. Which presidents had the most kids and the most grandkids? Which presidents had the fewest children and the fewest grandchildren? I'll quiz you on that when we come oh, back good. on Kane and Cup. You're listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. Will Kane and S.E. Cup return. On Twitter, at Will Kane and at S.E. Cup. Learned some lessons today. <laughs> yes, we did. There are no cameras in the champagne room. I mean, that's at the top of the list. Well, I think I think, I think most people assume there are not. No, they do not. Oh, right. Um, we actually learned something new. We did actually learn something new. I got something else for you. What, what? have you learned? I want to reveal for you, in fact, I'm going to quiz you now on which presidents had the most children and grandchildren when they took office. So when they were first sworn in, who was the most prolific father and the most prolific grandfather at the time he was sworn in? Let me ask you first, why Why does it matter? Why is this interesting to you? I'm just curious. I think it's... Uh, 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 
Something about virility. Is this going to earth? No, there's no connection right to any other segments we've had this morning. Oh, okay. You're no, just, it's I think just it's fascinating it's- who has been the most, um, who's had the most children. I think w- the number of children you have, I think, is, first of all, is a very interesting modern debate. Hmm. Um, I found it fascinating. This chart, this comes from 538 Nate Silver's website, um, that George H.W. Bush, the first Bush president, had six children, which I did not know. Um, of course, we know of George W. and Jeb. Yeah, I didn't know. I didn't know that either. Uh, I knew. I knew about a uh, Neil. I didn't know there was a Marvin. There's a Marvin Bush. I did not know that. Doesn't either. that sound fake? No, yeah, yeah. It sounds like an SNL skit. Like here's George and Jeb and Marvin. <laughs> there was also um, a Robin. I, I do remember this. She died of leukemia when she was four. Mm. And then there's a Dorothy. Uh, yeah. So it's George, Robin, Jeb, Neil, Marvin, and Dorothy. A lot of kids. Well, I'm going to give you a chance to guess any of those presidents that might have been the top five, had the most children when they were first sworn into office, um, and I'm going to give you a hint. Okay. You what? should go back in time. Go back in time. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, people today don't have like 10 kids. Oh. Very nice. Oh. That was Scooby-Doo music. <laughs> going back in time. Uh, yeah. People today don't have as many kids as they used to, right? Right. Unless you're the Romneys. They have a lot of kids. Right. Um, okay. So I'm going to guess, because historically people know this about him, Thomas Jefferson probably had a lot of kids. Thomas Jefferson is, t- is tied for number one. He had 11 children. Legitimate? When he was first sworn into office, he had 11 children. This does not break them down into legitimate <laughs> and illegitimate. Okay, let's not. He had 11 children when he was sworn in. Yeah, and he was a grandfather. He had two ch- grandchildren by and the time. And that's tied for first? That's tied So for there's first. someone else who has 11 kids. That's right. Is it is is that person pre-war? Is that person before the First World War? I was going to say, what war are we talking about here? First, before the First World War. Yes. Uh. Uh. Harrison. You you I uh, how did you get that? <laughs> no, I did not. No, I did not. Yeah. Are you kidding? No, I swear you just got it. A total <laughs> guess. To, I will not even pretend I had any knowledge. I have no idea. I just guessed someone who was like before the First World War. Wait, wait, wait. No? Which Harrison? Oh. Henry? Let's see how good you are. Henry? Yes, uh, William Henry it is. <laughs> William Henry! <laughs> William Henry Harrison. Not Benjamin. William Henry Harrison had 11 children, and by the time he was first sworn in, 25 grandchildren. Wow. Okay, now what's the drop-off after 11? Not much. Um... It's down to 10 with Andrew Jackson. Had 10 children Whoa. when he was sworn in. Your other top fives, Tyler had nine. Garfield had seven. And Rutherford B. Hayes had eight, actually. So he's a little ahead of uh, Garfield there. Mm. Garfield's one of my favorite presidents. Is he? Yeah. You're not being facetious. I am not. It's a random one. You're trying to be Destiny of the there. Republic. Everyone should read it. It's a great book on the biography of James Garfield and his untimely death. Only served 100 days in office. Is it William Henry that also served a short time, or is it Benjamin Harrison that served a short time? I don't, I don't know. It's William Henry. I don't know. Got sick at his inauguration. Giving oh, his inauguration got a cold speech. because he got a cold. He wasn't a wearing cold. a coat. I and remember that story. shortly after. There's the lesson. Have a lot of children, short presidency. What? That's one of the things we learned today that on Canaan Cup. That doesn't make any sense. No, <laughs> no, no. Thanks for hanging out with us today. We've had fun with you the last three hours. We'll be back again next Saturday, 9 to noon, on Twitter, at Will Kane and at Essie Cup. Enjoyed Thanks, it. Thanks, y'all. See you next week.
You're listening to Kane and Cobb. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network.